Well, good morning, everyone. You might remember me from the announcements or the membership induction moments ago. I'm Caleb, one of the pastors here. Um, I, have, I have to tell you a little bit of an embarrassing moment. Um, it, it happened one time to me uh, that I mispronounced chutzpah in front of one of my heroes. Um, and it's one of those memories uh, that I can, I can laugh about, uh, but I also, at the right moment, you know you have like the, the shame shudder where you're just like, oh, that hurts that that happened. Um, it may seem like a, a, small, a small deal to you, uh, but I was, I was in the middle of a year-long training program uh, with Redeemer Presbyterian um, for leaders who were preparing to, to start a new uh, church uh, within the five boroughs. And even being in this uh, program was a, was a huge step in my life. It was a really, really meaningful um, thing to get to participate in. And once a month in this year-long training program, the five of us in the course got to meet uh, in person with Tim, Tim Keller. Um, and he was a hero of mine. I'll say more about that in a moment. But um, they let us know, you know, sort of by the, the way we operated, that this was a big deal. Um, and we did question prep. Um, in advance for Tim coming to, to meet with us so that we didn't ask stupid questions in front of him. Um, and they really wanted us to make the most of the time. I was in my 20s um, and it was a little intimidating, quite, quite frankly. Tim was, um, in my opinion, one of the greatest preachers uh, in, in America, um, in, in a generation. Um, specifically, he was a tremendously winsome scholar. So he, like, he could make like, really complex and difficult uh, you know, ideas and concepts digestible. And, and, and uh, I found that he made the deep mystery and beauty of the gospel of Jesus intelligible um, to very educated people in, in the heart of Manhattan, many of whom who in this pluralistic city didn't believe in Jesus or the claims of Christianity. And yet Tim's ministry had this like tremendously compelling way of talking about, about Jesus in a way that's like, I don't know if that's true, but I wish it was true. You know, that's like kind of how you felt when you, when you and, and, and in the heart of New York City, they had grown this, uh, yeah, just incredible, impactful church. Um, they, like they were helping us get started. So many of the churches in New York City exist because of the training and the generosity of Redeemer and, and, and Tim Keller. And I'd probably listened to hundreds, hundreds of this man's sermons um, before I'm sitting in the room with him leading up to this, this opportunity. Actually, the, even the idea of moving to New York City in my, in my life uh, began in part um, in 2003. Tim came to South Florida. I drove a, an hour and a half to hear him speak. And he, him sharing about God's love for the city, this, this city and the cities of our world, captured my heart. Um, he, he talked about how there's so much image of God in a city, right? This concentrated place where every human being, I don't know how you felt when you woke up this morning, but every human being bears the image of God. And that means when there's a concentrated group of human beings, there's a lot of the image of God radiating out. And that's a beautiful thing. And God loves that. Like God has disproportionate love for cities because he has disproportionate love for people. And when people get together, God loves that. And the culture that's created and the disproportionate impact of cities on life in the rest of the world. And Tim just began to stir my imagination for what was possible. I was like, I'm young and idealistic and, and, and probably naive enough to not know what I'm doing. I'm going to move to New York City with no job like, and see what happens, right? to get an apartment, uh, a first year married. Then in my first year living in New York, things got hard. You ever had a first year in New York? You ever had a third year in New York? Um, 
And I was having a tough time. I was commuting to Connecticut every, every Saturday night because I was leading music for a church up there and I was doing terrible at it. They were ready to get rid of me. I was tired of the traffic on the hutch. Um, and I was working in real estate and I was also not very good at that. And I called my mom in one of those, you know, call your mom moments where I was like, I'm not doing well. I'm like, I'm really struggling in the city. I'm really struggling with like all that I thought we moved here for and what it looks like now. And my mom had this great piece of advice. She said, why don't you ask Tim Keller to mentor you? <laughs> Thanks, mom. Perfect. I was like, because he's Tim Keller. He's leading a church of thousands and writing best-selling books, and he doesn't know me. So uh, it was a bit like her saying at the time, like, why don't you call Steve Jobs and, and ask him to walk you through the updates on the phone? Just like, you don't get it? Um, so sure enough, though, moms know stuff. And two years later, uh, I was sitting with five other leaders uh, in this mentorship class with Tim Keller. And, um, and, and all that had happened, and yet I still wasn't that familiar with Yiddish expressions. And, and I, ha I had heard it spoken before, and I bet if I had heard it in context, I could have I gotten there, but I was reading out loud in a group with my hero listening, and I said, chutzpah. And Tim chuckled. And uh, yeah, and then I evaporated into humiliation mist. Um, one of the other guys in the course corrected me. Uh, but apart from that faux pas, uh, which is French for false step, um, that, year, that year was uh, incredible. Um, incredible. I can't tell you enough. Tim was, uh, was kind, was gracious, was as helpful as you could have possibly hoped. Um, I learned so much in that year in pastoral knowledge, um, but also in skill, but most of all in just like life and how like what godly character looked like, um, you know, over time, how to live. He told us, I'll never forget, he told us the most important thing your congregation needs from you is your character formed in the way of Jesus. He said character is so much more important than gifts. And if your gifting outruns your character, you're gonna be in a very dangerous place. Um, he told us not to make our ministry our identity. And I was like taking notes, I was like, sure, won't do that. Uh, <laughs> tremendously, much, much harder to do in practice than I, than I thought. Um, the first time someone leaves your church and goes to another church, you're just like, I'm terrible. I have no chutzpah. Um, I, I uh, yeah, he taught us how he prayed. He taught us how he read the Bible. He taught us how he prepared to preach the Bible. In my first five years of leading this church, every time I preached, almost every single time, I would listen to whatever Tim had said on the passage uh, just to make sure I was like, not off too much. Um, eventually, I was like, listen, I need to develop my own voice, so I stopped, stopped doing that. Um, but pr Tim's preaching has left a mark on me forever, for, forever. Um, I remember once I was sitting uh, in a huge auditorium packed full of church leaders um, and uh, Tim was about to get up to speak and I was sitting next to him. And I remember seeing there was a place so worn out on his khakis right around the knee um, that you could see his leg and he hadn't bothered to replace his khakis. And there was something about that that just stood out to me, made a mark on me as a young, young leader. Auditorium full of people there to hear him. Massive impact in the kingdom of God. Best-selling books, worn out pants, 
didn't bother to replace them. Basically, like, I'm sure he's a human being, but like, like very little vanity. I just thought that's, that's a really compelling thing to see. And the years after that training that I went through, he remembered my name. Um, he, he, uh, uh, when our congregation went through some massive heart-wrenching tragedies in 2018, Tim and his wife Kathy came to the hospital and they sat with us in the night, like they sat and kept the night watch with us. And um, I'll never forget that, just like those moments. And tremendous, tremendous gift. (laughs) Dr. Tim Keller died uh, of cancer at 72 years old this week. He finished well. Uh, He had chutzpah. And he is living the resurrection. Church. He's living the resurrection right now. Uh, He is experiencing the union with Jesus that is our hope, uh, that is promised to all of us who uh, trust trust in Christ, that God is going to treat you and I like his firstborn son. Man, woman, he's going to welcome us in like family and say, well done good and faithful servant, even though many times we won't have been good and many times we won't have been faithful, he's going to treat us like Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel, that we're welcomed in, not because of our achievement, but because of what he has given us as this utterly free gift. And Tim's life radiated that free gift. (laughs) So I want to, I did want to give honor where honor is due and to tell you that Trinity Grace would not be here without the ministry of of Redeemer and Tim Keller. Um, But also, I'm not just eulogizing my friend, um, uh, a hero of mine. I want you to pay attention to how Luke starts this story in Acts 1 because it's really interesting and it reminds me of something Tim used to do all the time. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Luke starts his letter, Dear Theo, Dear Theophilus, and uh, we learn a few things right off the bat in the beginning of his letter. One, he's writing his second book about Jesus, okay? Um, And the first book, he tells us, was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So we're told that this is a sequel, and it's important to know all that Jesus began to do and teach, because what you're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. And so when you see the church living out the way of Jesus in the book of Acts, it's the continuation of Jesus' ministry. That's what we're doing. And us, thousands of years later, and Redeemer across the river, like thousands of years later, what we're doing is living out the, the, the life and mission of, G, of Jesus. When we welcome new members into our church, we're welcoming new people into the stream of this uh, continuation of the life and ministry of Jesus. Whatever we have, if we have coherence at all as a community, It is in connection to the life and ministry of Jesus. And and to the degree we're not that, we lose our coherence as a community. And so many times the church's greatest failures are because we lose our coherence in connection with what Jesus was about. So he's also writing to someone specific. 
And we know, uh, and this is something that Tim, I felt like did so well, is that he knew the world he was surrounded by, pluralistic city, uh, culturally educated, sophisticated people who had real reasons to doubt the reality of God and the claims of Christianity and the way people use power in the world to manipulate and, and all, all the different you know, scandals and hypocrisies that we're all familiar with. And Tim had a way of just so beautifully communicating to, the, to that audience who he knew so well what the way in life of Jesus looked like. He communicated the gospel in a winsome way in that space. Luke is trying to do the same thing. There's a long heritage of that. We, we know something from history of who Theo, Theo is. Um, an educated cultural person, quite, quite likely a wealthy nobleman. Now here's the, the beauty. The gospel often does re, re, really well in all, all different spaces. And certainly you don't have to be sophisticated or educated or cultured to receive it. Actually, sometimes it's people who are, who are living very close to their need, most clearly, who are often ready to receive the grace and kindness of God. And it's people who have to have all their own power structures and self-sufficiency deconstructed to come to a place of, of knowing that they, they need God or they need something uh, ultimate in the place of their heart's devotion and worship that, that nothing in this world is re really going to uh, serve well in that space. Tim had a, a beautiful ability to deconstruct the motivational structures of our, of our life and help us see that actually the thing you're longing for is Jesus. Luke is attempting to lay out an honest and orderly account of Jesus' life. He's basically trying to help this man, Theo, know that he can count on what he's heard about Jesus as being true. And, and Luke's a doctor, and he's like, let me show you in a detailed way how, how this story all came to be. Tim used to say that um, it's easy to imagine uh, the people of the first century biblical times like they were really superstitious or, or primitive or too easily convinced of religious type claims. But when you get into the actual historical facts, you actually find something quite different. <laughs> they, they were just as unlikely to believe someone had risen from the dead as you or I. But Luke says Jesus has shown himself to many <laughs> And these people can be consulted. Go and speak with them. And so we have, as we talked about last week, we have these monotheistic Jewish fishermen, tax collectors, men and women who, had, who, who were following Jesus had begun to worship a human being as if it was Israel's God, Yahweh, who shook the mountain. I can't possibly tell you what a staggeringly huge leap that is to go from the one who rescued us from Egypt, the one who shook Mount Sinai to calling this human being, that same God was utterly mind altering. He, he had died, they saw that. Now he had risen from the dead and now he's leaving. Fantastic. He's leaving like the story of Jesus continuing to do and to teach in his ministry and life going forward begins with Jesus leaving. What on earth is going on? And Jesus had sort of cryptically been speaking about leaving like it was going to be a good thing. And his disciples kept being like, no, 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 thank you. Do not leave and you shouldn't leave. And what are you talking about? That's kind of how they answered him over and over and over again. And so we have a day, Ascension Sunday, to celebrate Jesus leaving. And that's why nobody celebrates Ascension Sunday. 
It's the least marked church holiday of them all. Like Advent and Christmas, we get that. All right, God is incarnate. God is among us. God is moving into the neighborhood. The person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We need to have a massive celebration of this to remember every year that God has moved to be near us, that he has fully embraced the human experience, that we are not alone. Give me Advent, give me Christmas. Then you come to Easter and Holy Week. We throw another huge party, a a, a week-long, you know, remembrance of the fact that Jesus has demonstrated power over everything that separates us from God. The cross, the resurrection, that he's died on our behalf. He's taken our sin on himself. He's dealt with death and risen to a new life. Holy Week and Easter. Ascension Sunday. No cultural-wide celebration at all, except for the bounce houses. Very exciting of them to set those up to celebrate Ascension Sunday. Why? Like, because he's leaving. Because what on earth? (laughs) Like, what are we supposed to do now? I I think there's a bunch of different reasons for this. Obviously, the incarnation communicates God's nearness. Um, We need that. We need to be known by God. The, The cross and resurrection communicates the gospel, God's love, making salvation possible for us, that death is not the end. The ascension, however, is a moment where Jesus becomes absent and where we're reminded of the unfamiliarity of God. But my guess is we should have a cultural celebration of this because many of you will know what it feels like for God to feel absent or unfamiliar. And Ascension Sunday is a reminder that that's part of the experience as well. Yes, he is near, sometimes nearer than your skin. Yes, he does love us. Sometimes he, he, he goes to such lengths to show us he's removed our guilt and shame so we can be embraced as family. But there are some times when we need him to be near and it seems like he just vanished. And that's Ascension Sunday. We know what it's like to be human and so does God. We know what it's like to face the reality of death and so does God. And the good news is he's made his way uh, way through. But we don't know at all what it's like to ascend back to the throne of heaven. No thank you. We don't know at all what it's like to uh, carry God's sovereignty. He has this throwaway line to his disciples. You guys don't know the times and the places that are in the Father's heart. We we, we don't know what that's like at all. Um, And we may, if we're honest, despise God for being absent. And so this is why we're not exchanging gifts on Ascension Sunday. But I think it's a really important moment for us to pass through every year in the life of the church. And I want you to consider a few things you see from Jesus' disappearance. On one occasion, while he was eating with them. So, pause. Whatever the resurrection is, he's not a ghost. He's eating. He actually seems to prefer broiled fish and another story. So um, he's eating with them. That's good news for you in the kingdom of heaven that's to come. Tim Keller is eating. God bless us. Okay. He gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. A cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
The same Jesus uh, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The angels in, in, in Luke's account, they, they play like the Captain Obvious role uh, sometimes. It's just like, hey guys, why are you staring into heaven? What, what, what you looking for? Like they do the same thing in, 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 the, in, the, in the resurrection. Like they're, literally he's raised from the dead. The people are standing there trying to make sense of it. And the angel's like, what you guys looking for? Jesus, he's not even here. He's gone. And, and it's just like, come on guys, give us a second to catch up. The phrase I want want to pull out first from from Jesus' disappearance is this this phrase, wait for the gift. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. I want to say, before we say anything else, there are times in life when the most important thing that you can do is wait. There are times in life when the most important thing you can do is not run ahead with your best idea. Not run ahead with how talented and gifted you are. Not run ahead with your, your best guess at what should be happening next. There are times in life where the most important thing you could do is to wait. Ascension Sunday is a reminder for the body of Christ that sometimes the most important thing we can do is wait. Jesus has been pre- preparing them um, uh, that he's going to leave, but we know they struggle to gr- grasp it. If you want to have a little um, comparison, in John 14, there's a, a conversation Jesus is having with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And Philip says, basically like this moment you can feel like has been stirring in them the entire time they've been walking with him. And Philip finally gets the courage to voice it. He says, Jesus, he says to Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough. Like, This has been amazing. We see the kingdom of God. We know what you're about. We're following your Messiah. Now show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus gets downcast for a moment and he says, Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't know? I and the Father are one. This paradigm shifting moment for them where where they're like, yeah, show us the God who shook the mountain. Show us the God who who parted the Red Sea. And and he he says, you're looking at him. I and the Father are, 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 are one. And our minds begin to bend and twist and sort of like freak out at the concept of Trinity. But the same type of thing is happening here. In, in John 14, when Jesus says the Father and I are one, it's like the exact same substance, personhood, self, the, the, the same. And, and here it's wait for the gift. Basically, I'm going to come in the form of the Spirit. And we see another expression of, of Trinity. Jesus is leaving in physical form because Jesus is going to arrive in the Holy Spirit. You do not have less Jesus than these disciples. In fact, you and I have Jesus with us wherever we are because of the Holy Spirit. Like you can kneel in your home, you can gather together in this, and in the darkest, you know, like standing there as my father passed in that hospital room, Jesus, celebrating the first moment of our churches is gathering on, on, on September uh, 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 in t- of 2009, Jesus. Like in our highest and our lowest moments, Jesus is present to you. And you're like, yeah, but show me the guy with long hair and the Birkenstocks carrying the sheep and it's enough. We say that like Philip, I just need him to be here. He's like, I'm with you. My spirit is with you. Jesus leaves physically so that he can arrive in the spirit. Also, they had a massive mission and task that was so far beyond their ability whatsoever. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These fishermen, these tax collectors, these men and women, they had no way at all to know how they were going to do that. 
If anything, like, you, have you ever had the burden of something that was so far beyond you, but you knew you had to do it? How do you begin? They wait. They begin by waiting. They begin by not doing something. They begin by lis- listening. <laughs> he said, I want you to go into all the world Baptize them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them the way of Jesus. We're living in the wake of that. We know they did it. How? Well, they started by waiting. And I think there's some echoes of the heart of God in this. And I think there's some echoes of the beginning of the story all the way back. The echoes of the very first Sabbath are present. In the beginning of new creation, as the gospel goes forth, there are echoes of the first Sabbath. In Genesis... Remember, God tells his people uh, to be fruitful and to multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Go to the ends of the earth. Fill the world with culture, with songs, with rocking chairs, with cities, with new ideas. God's heart was to fill the world. Be be fruitful and multiply. And how are they going to begin? Join, they're going to join God in the loving care of the world and the advancement of creation in communion with God. And how do they start? The first day for human beings in the creation story in Genesis, in the Hebrew poetry, is a day of rest. God makes them on day six and they rest on day seven. Their first day is not a day of activity. Their first day is a day of rest. We work from rest, not work to rest. That's that's the paradigm in, in God's heart, is that you and I work from a place of resting in God and going and working from that rather than slaving away and then finally getting a chance. Literally, this was written to people who had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Their their culture is being reformed by the kindness of God. And what does he say to them, right? Sometimes when we read Genesis, we imagine like a scribe was flying around in the creation moment and all that and like writing down. No, this was written after they came out of slavery in Egypt. In the heart of the Hebrew poetry of Genesis 1, there's what's called a chiasm, which is when the Hebrew words point to one another to help you not miss what it's about. And in the center of the, of the Genesis 1 chiasm about what creation is all about, you know what's there? Sabbath. People resting with God. People being with God in communion. Like New York City. Oh, we can hustle. Right? The rent's too high. Work, work starts early, ends late. They were like, we need a nickname for this place. Nobody sleeps. That's not God's heart. God's heart is for you to be, yeah, there are times we're going to hustle, but there, God's heart is for you to hustle from rest. To start in a place of receiving your identity, of being resourced with love, of being equipped with what you need, and being sent out into something that's beyond yourself, but from a place of receiving from God. At the beginning of their story, Yahweh tells them that rest is at the center, Sabbath is at the heart. And Jesus' mission is for them to join in. Redemption, salvation, forgiveness, new life to the ends of the earth. And they begin waiting in prayer. The worst thing they could have done was to set out to accomplish that by their own power and resources. You want to see someone get fried and run run out and break down? 
They must have the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna spend too much time on this and we're gonna wrap up in just a moment, but um, I think there's another interesting description of the Trinity at work in this passage. You can see it. Our church is called Trinity Grace Church because in John 17, Jesus says, I want you to share with them the, the, the thing that we've been sharing from the beginning is essentially what he says. Like give them a taste, give them access to, embrace them with what we've been embraced by from before the foundations of the world. And here you see the Trinity at work again. What's the Father doing? The Father's making promises, setting times and dates by his authority. He is the King of the kingdom. What is the Son doing? He, he suffered and died and rose. He's now eating with them. He's now eating with them. He's now instructing them. And it says he instructs them by the Holy Spirit. This is the paradigm for how the church is going to work. Jesus is going to eat with us, share a meal with us, but we're gonna be led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, what's the Holy Spirit doing? It's, it's how Jesus gave instructions. The, he, the Holy Spirit is the promised gift, the one that will baptize them, the one that will give them power to accomplish the mission. God made you to be a human being and your decisions matter in a tremendous way. But God did not design his kingdom to advance by willpower primarily. He designed his kingdom to advance along relational lines through surrender to love and specifically surrender to the Holy Spirit. And when we surrender to the Holy Spirit, it does something to our character. The fruit of God's spirit in our character is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So Tim, all those years ago when he said, the best thing you can give your church is your character. is like life in the Holy Spirit. That you're becoming a type of person, not that you're doing types of things. Throughout the rest of the book of the Acts, the Holy Spirit will accomplish the mission of Jesus in, in full participation of the people but by the power of the Spirit. So they wait. That's the message. They wait for the Holy Spirit. Next week is Pentecost. Um, we're in the midst. Elder Jackie is hosting 10 days of prayer at the office. Go, like, the, the, the best thing we could do in response to, to this is to go and wait in prayer together over the next days. And if you can't make it to the office, don't, like, you know, put a shame blanket on. Pray from your house. Pray from your house. Pray from wherever you are to participate in waiting for the Spirit. Now the Spirit's already come and in a sense like we're enacting, asking for the Holy Spirit to fill us even though the Holy Spirit has filled us. It's this perpetual reality that we're constantly saying, God, my hands are empty again. Fill me up with your life. And if you come with nothing, you come with all you need. If you come with nothing, you come with all you need. And Jesus says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Now the rest of the book of Acts shows us what this means, uh, but it's simply, very simply this. You'll receive power to live and to love the way Jesus did. What do you need power for? To live and love the way Jesus did. And it says you will be my witnesses, not my prosecutors. You'll be my witnesses. When a new king in the first century ascended to the throne, heralds would go out through the kingdom to pronounce this king is the king now. And that's the exact word that Jesus uses here. Essentially, you're gonna go out into the world and you're gonna say, this is what it looks like when Jesus is king. It looks like forgiveness taking place. 
It looks like generosity being demonstrated. You want to look at what it looks like? Look at the end of Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit falls. They take care of one another. They're meeting needs. People are being healed. The kingdom of God is being demonstrated in tangible form in the ministry of Jesus through these people by the Holy Spirit. They're going to be witnesses. They're going to be heralds that Jesus is king. And there's an already and a not yet reality of that. You look out at the world, you read the headlines, right? It doesn't look in lots of places like Jesus is king. (laughs) Our ministry as a church is to be little outposts of that new reality, of that new creation, of that new kingdom. To do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. To wait for the resources of heaven to operate, to give us our vision, to give us our our direction, to to, to continue to motivate, to to give us grace to forgive one another when we step out of line, when when we mess up. All right, we're done in three minutes. You can look at the timer, it's back there, okay? So where did Jesus go and what's he up to? (laughs) The conception is not that Jesus um, sort of spaceshiped off into the nether worlds like like in a sense yes they're they're looking up but the the conception of of the uh, uh, is more like this um that 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 heaven and earth is overlapping realities um in in the world like they're different dimensions and jesus says i pray that my kingdom that the kingdom of god would come on earth as it is in heaven that the reality of god's character and life would be so we're not we're not primarily waiting to rocket ship off into a never-ending choir practice in the clouds that's not the new testament hope it's that heaven would come to earth that's actually the new testament hope that that those two worlds would those two circles would fully come together and the reality of God's kingdom would be seen on earth as it is in heaven. That, and so when Jesus, it says a cloud hid him, it's literally the cloud of, of, of the presence of God in the New Testament. So God, Jesus goes ahead of us into the God space and from there he, he ministers his grace to us. He, he sends the Holy Spirit and he applies and it's so hard not to do the up and down thing but that's not the reality of the picture. It's basically he enters into the God space and he's administrating the authority of his resurrection the power of his spirit. And it says, you want to know what he's primarily up to? (laughs) Hebrews 7. This is what we're going to close with. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins. And then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints his high priest, men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. He is a high priest to us. And one of the primary ministries he has is Jesus is praying for you and I to enter the fullness of what you have in redemption, in the gospel, in salvation, to not miss an ounce of your inheritance. He is our high priest and he intercedes for us. This Jesus disappearing story, what does it leave us with? A praying savior and a praying church. It says there's about 120 of them gathered. And you can just sort of move around the room. We get some of the names. Peter, Simon and Matthew, Mary, the other women. Judas was missing. You can picture their faces. 
We know Peter's failure. We know Simon and Matthew were actually utter political rivals. Matthew tax collected for the Romans. Simon was a zealot that was like, by violence, we will drive these out. And they're in the same room and they're praying that a new type of humanity is breaking forth into the world by the power of the Spirit. These women who had financed Jesus' ministry and they're waiting, they're longing. Jesus is the firstborn of a new type of creation and he's gone ahead of us. Sometimes the most important thing we can do is wait. How do you wait? You wait in prayer. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost follows the disciples waiting in prayer. So I want to say to you on Ascension Sunday, Jesus is in charge. Let's pray and learn how to live through that prayer. If you can make it to the office in the next seven days, I really invite you, 7.30, 5.06 Fifth Avenue, we're gonna be there praying. If you can't, let's pray together in our homes gathered across Brooklyn or across the city. And let, let, let's pray the reality of this story. Heavenly Father, I pray you would minister to us by your spirit now. We are in a slightly different place in that you have already come at Pentecost and we have your spirit, Lord. But I, I do pray that we would be those who learn to wait for you, who, who learn to look to you, who learn to rely on you instead of our own strength and resources first. I just want to ask God that you would speak really simply to the hearts of each person here, um, what it would look like for them today to respond to you in faith. And so many times I want to make that something I'm going to rush out and do, but I pray that maybe for, for many of us it's just going to be simply to rest, to wait, to just accept and receive from you. So I pray you would minister to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.